This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Phil Craig. And I'm Andrew Loney. And together we aim to bring you the most scandalous stories and some of the most scandalous people in history. So thanks for joining us here on the Scandalmongers podcast. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Philip. Do you know, you're the only person in my whole life who calls me that. I do, and it must you and annoys mother, you too. You and my mother. <laughs> it's Phil. Um, well, here we are again in Scandal Central, our beautifully appointed HQ in glamorous Kentish Town, North London. Um, and I think we should ask the brilliant team who has helped us make Absolutely. these shows, Theo, David, and Karam, um, how they're feeling this morning. How are you feeling, lads? Scandalous. <laughs> They're feeling scandalous, good, Andrew. Good, We're doing our job. We are doing our job. Well, we enjoyed talking so much last week about um, Princess Diana and uh, the various stories and scandals associated with her. We've come back for more. We have. I mean, it's such a big subject. And, of course, it's so topical now with the Crown and um, with always new stories coming about Diana. But I've got something even more exciting to say. We are going to have our very first guest and someone who really was an insider. And when I say guest, he's not here in Kentish Town. I interviewed Patrick Jeffson, who is Diana's only private secretary, a really important person in her life, and who's become a really important commentator on her life. And in the news this week, actually contradicting some of the things in the, in the newspapers about the Crown. Yes, indeed. Um, he wrote a very strong article defending it, actually, um, and saying some other very strong things, which he said to me yesterday. And we're going to play that one in, so we're going to sort of fill it ourselves with a slice of Patrick Jefferson in a but, minute. But coming to the crown, you've watched the first few episodes and I've been doing some commentary on it. What, what do you make of it? I think it's... Okay, I think they captured the dynamics of the Charles and Diana relationship really well um, and the Charles and Camilla relationship really well. 
Did every single scene that they portray happen? Did every line that they sh- that they dramatize was that every line spoken? I don't think so. But they they do what great dramatists can do. They they capture the dynamics of it. Um, and I remember they in the previous series, the trip to Australia, which is a brilliant episode. And I'm, when I was doing my work on Diana, I had some particularly good sources for what was happening during that trip to Australia. And I thought they absolutely nailed it. Um, and I think they do in the destructive phase of the marriage, if you like, which is what they're exploring in the current series. But it's such a good story and such a dramatic story. Why do they need to invent these these episodes? In some ways, they, they dilute sometimes the story. And it confuses the, the viewer because, you know, the production values are so good. People are beginning to take the, even this invention as reality. They do go too far. I mean, Prince Philip apparently was very upset uh, in one of the earlier series when um, the fact that his sister died in a plane crash, was linked to him behaving badly at school. Suggestion made that she'd come to see him because of his behaviour, and that was um, something Philip well, absolutely denied well, ever happened. Totally untrue, absolutely. So, yes, they go. Yes, they do take liberties. Uh, of course they do. Um, and it's a shame. But I think, by and large, especially when it comes to the things you and I have been talking about, they have done a pretty good job. I really do think that. Um so for those who didn't listen to the previous episode, which I recommend that you all do, we talked a lot about the briefings that went on from all sides and the biographies that were written and the programs that were made and how both Diana's camp and Charles's camp fed a series of very exaggerated stories that led to us all believing lots of things that were really quite inaccurate um and but also you talk about the camps but there were sort of camps who were also writing about it there was a, a charles camp in terms of biographers and there was a down the camp too. absolutely the, the, the secret to understanding this is that this is a painful divorce there's lots of spite and exaggeration as there often is in a divorce but it's all amplified by people taking sides in the media and they did it because it was an amazing story and they could make an awful lot of money with book deals um, I don't blame any of the writers who did that. Um, I mean, Andrew Morton, we talked about him last week. Um, he had the most amazing scoop of his life. Um, he, he did exactly what he said he would do. He gave Diana a chance to tell her story. And it's interesting but, why he was chosen. I mean, it was because he was an independent journalist and, and the, the people didn't feel, well, they didn't feel he would be put under pressure. He could sell it where he wanted. I think Diana felt, and rightly so, and Patrick will speak about this in a minute, that she was being quite heavily briefed against. She also knew, and we talked about this last week as well, she knew that there was a tape. She didn't know what was on it, but she knew there was a tape that could be printed and published at any time, and that would put her on the back foot in the divorce that she saw as inevitable, or the separation, I should say, she saw as inevitable. Yeah, no, I agree. This is a ticking time bomb, and this, in a sense, sets off this chain of events. And it's odd that the Crown don't deal with that in the same way. I mean, they're, they don't talk about the, the tape with, with Prince Charles, for example. Which is I think odd. they do, actually, in upcoming episodes. Uh, I think they are, they're doing the Camillagate tape. Right, but um, not the Squidgygate. But not the Squidgygate tape, which I think is a shame because I do believe it's the hinge point in her life. And that's because I take a view that not everybody takes but I take a view that there was a kind of accommodation, a kind of understanding that they were both leading parallel, mostly separate lives, and that's sort of held together for most of the time. But when this tape, um, when Diana realised there was a tape of her talking to James Gilby, um, she I makes think this preemptive strike. She, yeah, she does, and and that triggers a whole series. I mean, I think the briefings had started before, um, and so does Patrick. But then the whole thing escalates, really. Well, it does, and I think we've talked a lot about Diana and what fewer people have spoken about, 
and I, which I think is maybe going to be the focus of journalistic investigation over the coming few years, is what Charles was doing and what his camp was doing. His friends, his courtiers, what did he encourage? What did he try to stop? Did he ever reprimand anybody for going too far? I mean, the man is now the head of the Church of England. He's the king. Well, and we've also got, of course, this running story about Dumfries House and how far he was involved in Fawcett's promising of honours to people who gave money. Yes. And, you know, there's a debate, you know, was he completely hands hands off, knew nothing what Fawcett was doing on his behalf, or was, in some ways, Fawcett the front man who could take the rap if anything was caught? But, um, you know... I sort of feel I meet a lot of people who are 20, you know, I meet people a lot younger than you and I, and the idea that Diana was damaged in some way, that she was incapable of doing her job properly, that the idea that she was, she came into the marriage quite ill and her mental problems poisoned the relationship. That's very common. People say, oh, it's very sad, isn't it? But she was a bit crazy, wasn't she? And I I absolutely didn't. I I personally don't believe a word of it. No. I know Patrick doesn't, and and I'll explain in a minute. Clear in your book. But I think also it it fits the theme we've been talking about, how the history is curated and the narrative is shaped, often by powerful people, to to present a particular point of view. And we're trying to correct that all the time. That's right. And the, the idea that she suffered from a thing called borderline personality disorder, and that never came from any kind of formal diagnosis. It just came from conversations, maybe one-sided accounts of very private behavior. And we, in the project that I did, when we had a large team of people working for 18 months, two years, we spoke to many mental health experts. And the idea that she had this syndrome, when you consider how she performed publicly, was, was kind of ludicrous, really. Well, and I think Jonathan Dibbleby realized that. I think it dropped it from his authorized biography, but it was picked up by other writers, I think. Yes, indeed. Um, Penny Juna, who's always been very open that she believes this theory, and she's written several books about it, um, and we know that she received quite a bit of help from the palace. Um, and again, I just feel it's really not generally understood that a very powerful person like Prince Charles probably did authorise, I mean, he certainly didn't try and stop, people saying the most poisonous things about well, his wife to be fair you know people can say what they want it's not up to him to control their behavior you know he may have uh, may have helped him it may not have helped him uh may have made him appear bad uh, but the point is they these people were free to speak but your argument is they would have only spoken with his his approval well um well when we see patrick's interview you'll, you'll see his views on this nobody was ever dismissed from his circle nobody was ever reprimanded for taking part in these briefings. Clearly he felt he had to because the public sympathy was all with Diana at the beginning of the public kind of falling out of the the unravelling of the marriage. But the way they chose to fight back, the way they chose to try and paint her, um, I think now today we would would see it as being the the kind of worst example of behaviour that powerful men have often deployed against women. But he may have said, you know, who will rid me of this turbulent priest? And, and, and someone then jumped into that space. But I don't know. I, I, I think that's perhaps a bit harsh. I think it's more than someone. Um, if you talk to tabloid journalists and editors from that time, um, as we did for the programme I made, he would say, they would say, we have people ringing us up to say she's mad, you know. Don't listen to a word of her, what she's saying. She's, she makes stuff up. She... Well, I think one of the problems was that she was behaving often quite irrationally. I mean, those 300 calls to Oliver Hoare, you know, in some ways it, they were pushing it an open door. I've no doubt. And um, in the latter part of her life, 
she certainly did display some odd behaviours and, and the stalking, for that's what it was, of Oliver Hall was one of them. Um, and yet, toward even at the very end, where something like that landmine tour, she was capable of an enormously kind of impressive public performance. Um, and she was still the big star that embassies and companies wanted. They didn't want Charles, they wanted Diana, because she was brilliant at what she did. Well, I mean, she certainly highlighted the issue very, very effectively. But I think also, we didn't really talk about Panorama last week. And in some ways, if you look at the Panorama story, which is now unfolding, you can understand why she was had paranoia, because she didn't know who she could trust, including people like Patrick. Well, Martin is a very clever reporter. I've worked with Martin, and we're going to do a whole programme about him, I think, on, 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 on this particular scandal one day. He was one of the best foot-in-the-door merchants you'll ever work with. He was so charming. He made people feel like they were his friend. He, he drew people into a kind of intimate, gossipy relationship with him. And he, he, and he was very good at following up. He was still enormously close to lots of people he'd done stories about years before. He was just he had a gift for it. But he was also very clever and I think a little bit devious. He, he knew what was being whispered about Diana. And he fed that back to her. And he kind of, as it were, exploited the paranoia that she already felt um, and made her feel that she could trust nobody, not even Patrick, who was absolutely on her side all the way. And did a terrific job for her. And I mean, you know, in some ways, the great tragedy is if if he, she had continued to trust him, life would have been very, very different. That's She'd probably right. still be alive. I, I, just, I really do think so, yes. get, get viewers to write in with what they would like to hear. What are the scandals of the story? Oh, that's a good idea. Let's do that. You know, it would be very interesting to get some feedback. Uh, we're, we're picking the subjects at the moment, partly things that we know something about. We'll be bringing guests into the show. But uh, it would be fascinating to see what people want to just learn more well, about. I think now we're on various platforms, and I think there's a, even an email address that comes up at the end of the programme. So, yes, do please be yeah, in touch. I mean, we're here really to serve the interests of the viewers, really, not just to impose our own programmes. Uh, and it may be interesting for us to, to investigate new things that we hadn't really thought about. Absolutely. Well, without further ado, since we've sort of teed him up and talked about him, let's go to the interview with Patrick, and then we'll pick up at the end of that. Thank you. It's TV's Phil Craig. It's TV's Phil Craig. How are you? I'm okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us for our little podcast. How nice to be in uh, Studio Bonza. Yes, indeed you are. Bonza Road, Twickenham. Um, so um, I don't know if you've heard any of our work. It's quite a new venture that I'm doing with Andrew. I regret I haven't. I should have done as part of my prep, shouldn't I? I'm well, sorry. It's, it's absolutely fine, but I should, I should let you know that our audience will expect me to ask the toughest questions. So I'm afraid I have to start with this. Why isn't George Clooney playing you in The Crown? <laughs> what that went is, wrong? It is one of life's great mysteries, isn't it? <laughs> I think, I think uh, he was scared of getting typecast. <laughs> ah, that explains everything. <laughs> did you get the chance to meet with the actor who's playing you? I did, and on the previous series as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, not, it's, not, it's certainly not one of the the uh, uh, headline parts in the series, but um, I'm uh, very, very pleased with the choice. Well, no, I'm, 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 I've only seen the first episode, um, but I, I, for one, know that you were a headline part of that story, the real story, the story that both you and I have investigated in our different ways, written about, made programmes about, I should say. Uh, for those who don't know, Patrick and I um, worked together over many years. We've made, uh, was it a two-part series for Channel 4? Yes. On the subject, and yep. obviously you've you wrote your book, books, and I, I wrote mine. Um, but uh, 
I guess turning to what Andrew and I have been talking about in this particular episode, it is surprising to me that I still meet people, often they're quite a lot younger than us, and they say, oh, Diana, you know, it is quite sad, isn't it? But she was a bit crazy, wasn't she? I mean, she was probably impossible. And this seems to become a sort of settled view amongst a lot of people. Uh, I mean, you knew her professionally better than, well, anybody. How do you feel when you hear people say that? I get very frustrated, to be honest, Phil. I mean, uh, that has become the official line, I think. Uh, if you uh, if you ask people close to the current royal establishment, uh, if you dare bring up the subject of Princess Diana, which very few people would, then I think that is the answer you would get, that it is a tragic story and that she was essentially troubled mentally and the implication being that she was not entirely up to the job, uh, which essentially then she failed at. And the the uh, the unspoken addition is, but everything's all right now because we have her replacement, who is wonderfully down-to-earth and grounded and not at all flaky or paranoid. And I think that, that when I hear people uh, follow this line, when I see it uh, not being challenged, I think, well, wait a minute, I knew Princess Diana, as you say, probably better than, than almost anybody, and certainly in a professional setting. And she was one of the most sane people I ever met. Considering the life she lived, considering the pressures she was under, she wasn't just sane. She had a kind of uh, ability to restore sanity to crazy situations. Mm. I went all over the world with her to some very, very challenging places. Uh, you know, if you haven't seen Princess Diana at work in a leper hospital in Nepal or uh, in a drug rehabilitation clinic in Hong Kong or, um, for that matter, at the uh, uh, Humanitarian of the Year Awards in New York or the New York Fashion Awards or any number of, of uh, testing places from the White House uh, in in Washington to the Imperial Palace in Tokyo, Diana was was the very uh, quintessence of sanity, of normality, but also of good humour, of um, self awareness. And uh, we can talk a little further, I suppose, about how these ideas about Diana came up. But just as an eyewitness, she could be a bit of a handful sometimes, but she was always extremely self-aware, mm. sane, grounded, funny. I mean, you saw her over, what was it, the best part of a decade. Do you, know, do you notice a change in her character that might justify any of these allegations or suggestions that have been made? Well, what changed, of course, was she went from being, so far as the world was concerned, a happily married wife and mother uh, to being a discarded ex-wife. And uh, very um, determined mother. So that's a heck of a life change in anybody's book. So I witnessed her up close during those changes. Um, and again, that would, I think, qualify me better than most people to give a view on her mental health mm. throughout that time. She herself, once it became apparent that uh, her critics were trying to smear her with allegations of mental instability, did something very characteristic, but also 
I think something that that proves just how sane she was. She turned that to her advantage. She said, yes, I do have an eating disorder, for example. And she gave a speech about eating disorders. I can't think of a better definition of sanity than to have people accuse you of being nuts and stand up and make a speech about the condition that you do have and which a lot of people do, which affects a lot of young people, particularly young women. Um, uh, and that, I think, is a sign of extraordinary strength and I think shows the essential pettiness of her accusers. That's a really interesting point. And something that Andrew and I have been discussing is I wonder if the story of the War of the Waleses would have been received in anything like the same way if it was happening now, if it was happening in an age where we're much more concerned about things like coercive control. We use words like gaslighting. We've had the Me Too movement. I think Diana would have received a very different hearing, um, especially when you consider that the stories that we're talking about, as you and I both know, were by and large spread by men about a woman in a marriage at the behest of, in the service of, we perhaps never know, certainly with an intention to help another man who had himself displayed all sorts of strange characteristics, temper tantrums, and let's not forget, had been cheating on his wife from the, probably from the word go, if not from the word go, quite shortly after the marriage. So I, I remember she'd have got a much different. I think she'd had a very different reaction, don't you? So well, I hope so. I remember when um, uh, some of the prince's advisors were starting to spread these stories about the princess. Um, it was characteristic of her that she turned it into a subject of humour. I can remember her starting a speech um, at a uh, charity lunch. And in the papers that morning, there had been headline accusations that the prince was concerned about her mental health. She said, um, if I get interrupted during my speech, you have to understand it's just the men in white coats coming to take me away. <laughs> that got a good round of applause, as it should. And I think shortly afterwards, there was a cartoon in one of the tabloids, <laughs> the prince talking to a tomato plant and saying, I can't tell you how concerned I am about my wife's <laughs> mental health. <laughs> I do remember that very well. I'm remembering when we did our documentaries, you asked a lot of people a question. Um, and these are people who had been involved in the story, maybe as reporters or as court, courtiers or various friends. And you said, can you think of anybody who the Prince of Wales reprimanded or cut from his circle for aggressively briefing against his wife? And do you remember what happened when you asked those questions? Yes. No, nobody was dropped. Uh, the prince said that his spokesman said that the prince would not would not countenance any of his friends or advisors uh, criticizing his wife. But actually, they did so with impunity and with increasing daring. It is a mark, I think, of autocratic regimes that they should uh, label their critics as mentally ill. It was a feature of Stalin's Russia. <laughs> the political opponents tended to end up not in jail, but in lunatic asylums. And I think it was it was especially significant that one of the prince's um, most supportive writers and biographers, Penny Juna, um, wrote a whole book, uh, which was essentially a vehicle for a quack diagnosis that Diana had a, uh, a mental illness. So this was not just some casual gossip. This was a systematic campaign. And I think, okay, it was a long time ago, but the people involved 
are all still around. The man they were supporting is now our king. And these things uh, should not be buried. They should not be conveniently pushed to one side. They happened. In theory, they could happen again. And certainly they shouldn't pass without censure. Well, that's interesting. Um, of course, he's now the king. He's the head of the Church of England. Um, it's possible if the full, a full accounting of what was said and, and, and some of the, the nastier things that were said and the full background, if, if that was to come out, um, do you think it could yet raise a question mark over his status today? I don't know the answer to that, but it, it is a fact that aspects, for example, of the Bashir scandal have yet to come out. And it's worth re-examining that whole episode because we tend to look back on it as particularly after the Dyson inquiry. Uh, the BBC did some reprehensible things. Um, the reporter concerned Bashir has been sacked <laughs> belatedly uh, and we can all move on. But actually, if you examine the lies that Bashir fed to Diana, the very carefully calculated way in which he set about undermining her confidence in her support system, isolating her, mm. uh, playing on her vulnerability, and making her uh, easy prey for him and his ambitions, then I think it's worth examining again these allegations that Diana was in some way paranoid. Notably, after the Bashir interview, uh, Prince of Wales's good friend Nicholas Soames went straight on TV and said that she had galloping paranoia. Well, you know, it's only, it's only paranoia if they're not out to get you. Exactly. And what Bashir, uh, what his, his plain intention was to convince her that they were out to get her. Yes. And I don't altogether blame her for giving that some credence because there was plenty of evidence in, in her own experience that people were briefing against her, were tapping her phone, um, were hostile to her in many ways and determined to clip her wings as a princess. Uh, and she had reasonable grounds also to think that her uh, connection to her children might be um, at risk during the divorce negotiations. So Bashir knew what he was doing. He was very good at it. Uh, he undermined her, her confidence. He undermined um, her uh, ability to form um, uh, decisions that she could have confidence in. Mm -hmm. And in those circumstances, um, to act in a rather uh, uh, cautious way, to be suspicious, to be, uh, from some respects, easy to classify as, as paranoid, is not altogether surprising. And I think it, it, it means that we can look again at how Princess Diana has been perceived. If she believed what Bashir told her, it was a perfectly rational response hmm. to do what she did. Interesting, very interesting. I mean, going back, we've talked about the, the briefings against Diana and the, the, the background, some of the, the more famous books written that were critical of Diana, how they were perhaps fed information that was very one-sided uh, indeed. But of course, Diana herself was not blameless in all of this. She, You could argue she'd started it by going to Morton. Um, but which was the first big public statement about unhappiness in the marriage from her side. Um, now, there's a story in The Crown, or rather there isn't a story in The Crown, which I've always thought was a bit of a hinge moment. I know we've talked about this before. 
Diana knew about the tape recording of the conversation with James Gilby. She knew about it for 18 months before it was actually published. Do you think that might have been the reason why she felt she had to speak to Morton or somebody to kind of get her retaliation in first? Because she knew something was, and she never knew when it was going to be published, but it could be any day. Or do you think that's not so important, really? I think if you see it from her situation, she was aware that her marriage was dead, that her husband was uh, pursuing uh, a very efficient and successful long-term relationship uh, with Camilla Parker Bowles. She also knew, sadly, that her own attempts at extramarital happiness were were pretty useless and, and had not produced anything in the way of um, uh, stability or happiness or contentment uh, for her. And she was also uh, far too aware that nobody was calling the prince to account for his conduct. Nobody in his family was calling him to account. Uh, they seemed to be complicit in what to her uh, was a betrayal. Um, the establishment was complicit. The affair with, with Camilla Parker Bowles was well known in establishment circles. And all they did uh, was to talk about Diana behind her back, to whisper about her. Nobody offered her support. Nobody took her to one side and said, now look, this is all very unfortunate, but it happens in royal families and you can get through it and we're going to support you and you're doing a great job and we want you to do more of it. No, she was left isolated. She was left with no acknowledgement of the situation she was in, the stress she was under, the challenges she faced every day to raise her children in these circumstances and prepare them for a life of service. And uh, she thought, well, how am I going to get my side of this out? Remember, Morton's uh, book is titled uh, Diana, My True Story. And she wanted her story out there. Uh, it wasn't the whole story, as we now know, but it was her story. And at the time, again, you have to put yourself in her shoes. She was up against a relentless establishment media machine on her husband's side. She was up against her husband's family, who naturally uh, took his side. And um, she had nowhere to turn. Well, that's so interesting. And of course, a lot of this is happening during the period of her greatest success as a public figure. Um, the, the, the extraordinary run she had through the late, the mid to late 80s, where she seemed to define the age almost. And she certainly seemed more in tune with the age than perhaps her husband was, uh, and just had success after success on the, on the global stage. I remember meeting Americans at that time. They couldn't believe there was any problem in the royal yeah. marriage. How could there be? She's a superstar. And yeah. yet I found the people I met when I did my work, and I know you, I think you will agree with me, one of the many things digging away here, undermining everything, was professional jealousy. I don't think, I think a lot of people in the royal family rather resented the success that you and she had. Is that fair? That's entirely true, Phil. I mean, she was very, very good at her job. You only have to look at some video of her at work. Um, she had a gift for it. She also looked the part. Uh, there's there's no getting away from the fact that if you are going to have a princess, uh, she might as well look like a princess. Diana knew that she couldn't afford to disappoint people who had waited maybe for hours in the rain mm. for a glimpse of her. 
she always, always tried her very best, and her best was very good. She was very professional at what she did. Uh, she made it look easy. She made it look spontaneous, and she made herself look approachable and relatable. I'll tell you, she was um, no fool. She was a very, very uh, professional operator. You couldn't slip anything past her. She was very observant. She was very quick. She set high standards for herself. She set very high standards for her little staff. And um, a lot of people underestimated her to their cost. Well, and I so... think that uh, the royal family, it dawned on them uh, that they had a superstar in their midst who was, in many respects, better at their job than they were, uh, who was extremely popular, who appeared to be endlessly forgivable. Mm. No matter what mistakes she made, um, people gave her the benefit of the doubt. That was a priceless gift. Yes, it was. And uh, all of this, of course, is fertile ground for breathing jealousy, envy, uh, uh, puzzlement. They couldn't understand why this girl who had appeared from, um, you know, who had been a shy die, who had been this, this little mouse of a creature who was expected just to produce children and be quiet, um, had turned into somebody who, in the words of The Economist, uh, it was a it was a sort of a, a spoof corporate corporate um, analysis. They said, you know, House of Windsor has this spin-off, House of Spencer, which is outperforming um, the main group. And uh, that was the truth. If you went anywhere in the world, um, British embassies were clamoring for visits from Diana because she opened doors. I remember in Moscow, the ambassador saying, with a visit from Princess Diana, I can get to meet senior officials in the Kremlin who wouldn't come for anybody else. That's so interesting. This, you see, is is was also fed back. Um, the establishment in Britain, the sort of Buckingham Palace, Whitehall axis, was also uh, wrong-footed by Diana because the Foreign Office was very keen to have this extraordinary super ambassador, this this uh, this uh, exponent of. British soft power at its best. And yet they were getting mixed messages from Buckingham Palace because Diana was upstaging the rest of the royal family. You only have to look at some of the juxtapositions of photographs of Prince Charles, you know, with an ox plowing in Mexico and Princess Diana in Tokyo being mobbed by by thousands of, of cheering uh, locals. So they had a problem. And unfortunately, instead of embracing Diana as a fabulous asset, uh, as um, uh, somebody who could be uh, an essential part of, of the modern royal family, they chose instead to be suspicious of her, to resent her, to undermine her, finally to dislike her. Golly. Well, look, we're running out of time for this brief, fascinating conversation. I hope when we're next in the same country, you might come in and talk to us in the same room, which would be lovely. Um, I guess one final question I'd like to ask you is, where do you think the story is going? A lot of people who are listening to this may have read your article in The Telegraph recently. It was quite a long article. Ostensibly, it was a defense of the crown, but uh, it was quite clear that you were also, you were saying some fairly strong things about the royal setup, and it felt to me like you felt the story hadn't quite finished. What do you think to that? Well, I know that article was certainly presented as a defense of the crown, and to an extent it was. 
But it was also, I suppose, a warning that if we uh, allow the royal media machine, which is now very sophisticated, to have free reign uh, in how we learn about our royal family, how we understand it, how we perceive its members and their ambitions and agendas, then chances are we're going to be fed a lot of soft soap. We have to retain a a healthy and respectful skepticism about what we are told by palace press offices. And uh, as with everything else, we should judge that institution by its performance the way we judge all other great national institutions that command our loyalty. Hmm. Well, that's very interesting. Um, And I look forward to talking to you again about this. I'm sorry Andrew couldn't be here. He's off pursuing something scandalous, no doubt, of his own. But um, we really appreciate this, and we'll speak to you soon. Thanks very much. It's been great, Phil. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now. So, what do you think? Well, I mean, that's amazing. You know, uh, I think that does change. Well, I think there's some very, very interesting points that he's raised there, uh, uh, and in fact has, has given emphasis to what you were suggesting uh, about this in sense this briefing against Diana uh, and you know it, it shocks me to be honest that, that, that this narrative has been picked up which is quite unfair well he uses a very interesting word in that interview he says censure he thinks that Charles today should be exposed to censure for some of the things that were done at that time um, and for somebody with, with, with Patrick's background and knowledge that's that's a that's a seriously important statement, actually. And it, it drove me to um, my own archives, that conversation last night. And there was a small article in the Sunday Times in the mid-90s. And the article was headed, Officials drew up dossier on Diana's mental state. And the article was about allegations that inside Charles' office, people were putting together data about Diana questioning her mental health. And the last um, sentence was very intriguing, so I'll read it to you. Yeah. The Royal College of Psychiatrists, of which Prince Charles is patron, issues written guidelines warning members against speculating on people they have never met. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, well, clearly people were doing that. I think they were, and whether they were psychiatrists themselves or other doctors, or just people who just had an opinion, we maybe will never know. I think the problem is so many people were saying it that it, it in some ways reinforced it and made it seem authoritative. But it's sort of coming back to our theme too, that, that you know, people, these scandals, you know, are eventually exposed at some point. You know, you were talking earlier about, you know, people will be looking again perhaps at the role that King Charles played in this period in the 1990s. And, and maybe things will begin to appear. People will begin to talk and come forward. Uh, and we will get a slightly different narrative. Think of the big scandals we've already touched on. Think of what happened with Bashir, what happened with Jimmy Savile. Maybe one day what, what will happen with Lord Mountbatten. There's years of allegations. People slowly come forward. And then there is a tipping point. Well, I'm hoping, we talked about Mountbatten in, in the first programme, that the Arthur Smith, who's uh, bringing a legal case, some material will be, will, be, will be coming public next month. And so I'm hoping I can do an update on that. Well, that's, uh, we should certainly do that, actually, I think, as we go on. We should uh, keep reminding people of any progress and changes on the stories we've mentioned. 
But I, I have to share a funny story, which isn't in the Crown. Although this man's name is mentioned briefly, if you if you pay attention, and this is one of the weird ways in which history happens and scandals happen. You might even argue. So there's a man called Felix Lyle. He's an old friend of James Colthurst. Now James Colthurst is the man who is the middleman between Andrew Morton, the writer, and Diana. He ferries the tapes back and forward. He carries the questions and he carries the answers. But of course he did, you know, and, and they do show this in The Crown. Diana was in two minds. She wasn't sure whether she should do it. Um, and so James arranged for her to come to the house of Felix, Felix Lyle's house in Hampton, in southwest London suburb. And Felix was an astrologer, a kind of new age astrologer, and Diana was very keen on that sort of thing. And she spent hours there, and he did a chart for her, and they poured over it together. And Felix said, this would be a very good time astrologically for her to do something brave and bold, and to defend herself. And who knows whether that was a pivotal moment, but according to Felix, it was. After that, this, she said to Colthurst, right, we're on. So there, that's how history can sometimes turn on strange events. Well, I know, and we talked even just last week, you know, when Charles was, was deliberating about marrying her, he, he could have gone skiing with two people, and he went skiing with people who encouraged him to marry her, Whereas if you'd gone skiing with the other lot, they probably would have discouraged it. Very true, very true. I mean, I wonder what will happen. Will this subject just fade away? I'm sure in the various palaces they hope it will. Um, clearly, we're only a few months into Charles's reign, and there's been a certain amount of goodwill, understandably, um, dealing with the death of his mother. But we've already seen certain fault lines in his character exposed, the bad temper over the pen and there are many, many stories. I mean, it's quite ironic that people allege that Diana was mentally kind of unstable, and yet, actually, in public, at least, she was always consummately professional and charming and funny, and you can't always say that about Charles. But I wonder, do you think yourself, I mean, you, you must get book, book pictures to you all the time, journalists talk the to you? The subject carries on. I mean, we, you know, last week there was another documentary on Diana, um, and I think there are some difficult moments of the monarchy. Clearly, Prince Harry's book in January, we've got the future of Prince Andrew. As you say, we've seen these moments of, of petulance which are now sort of captured by social media. So um, I think, you know, this, this is dangerous moments. And, of course, there's still books coming out about the death. There's a, a book coming out from one of the bodyguards shortly um, who wasn't there actually at the crash but had been with her that summer. And it's interesting. I tried to sell that book a few years ago with no success. It's now gone to, to someone else. And they, it's the timing. Mm. And actually, one of the things that we were going to talk about was her death. Uh, and, you know, there's still lots and lots of conspiracy theories about that. I mean, you have very firm belief from your research that this was a tragic accident. I do, from, I do. From a drunk driver, basically. If the conspiracies are to be believed, an awful lot of things would have to be put in place. Ambulance drivers, hospital administrators, French government officials some driver in some car to ram them. And all of that would have to be organised in under a day. Because, don't forget, they were only in Paris because Dodi decided that morning to travel there, or maybe the previous day. So there was almost no time to arrange anything like has been alleged. But if there was a plan in place, I mean, after all, the funeral wasn't, you know, arranged and everything was done very quickly. That was a complicated business, the funeral for, for, for the Queen. 
I mean, if there was a plan in place, the, the white Fiat driver could have been in place to do that, could have been ready to, to drive in behind you. I mean, there are all these stories about concrete in the boot and the mysterious death of the driver. And, you know, th- there seem to be a series of conspiracies, but one on the death and then one on the cover-up afterwards, really, isn't it? Well, there are. Um, I just choose to believe that it was a genuine accident, that the, the guy was... He was drunk, he was driving too fast, he was enjoying goading the pursuing pack. There'd been a bit of a verbal exchange, I believe, between them beforehand. And of course, none of them were wearing a seatbelt. The only person actually in that car who survived was the only one wearing a seatbelt. Yeah, it is extraordinary. So that alone could probably have saved Diana's life. Um, so in this case, I think the... Occam's razor applies. The most likely explanation is the correct. But the one. driver did seem to have links with intelligence services. I mean, he did seem to have a lot of money. You know, it seems odd to put a driver in place who clearly had had a day off and was drunk. There was no backup. You know, there seems to be a series of, of mistakes were made. I think at the at least. Well, this is the tra- the great tragedy. Really, is that Diana, because she chose to have a divorce, which she didn't need to do. Um, and that's partly because she chose to do the Bashir interview, which she didn't need to do. She found herself in the situation where she was relying on people like the Fayed family for her security, and everything about that day was chaotic. Dodi was a chaotic person. Mm. The people around him were marginal characters and had, yes, sold stories about people who went into the Ritz um, and took money from newspapers and took money, no doubt, from intelligence agencies too. But everything about it was amateurish and slapdash. And that, to me, is the real reason why she died that night. I mean, it's extraordinary, too. It's, it's, it's you know, this, this, what happens when rich people call the tune. That Dodie was, as you say, panicking. He was doing all sorts of stupid things. And that he, he wouldn't listen to bodyguards who were there to protect him and her. No, it's a, it's a great tragedy. And, and to, be, to be fair to Charles, and we, we've included a fair measure of criticism of him on this programme, um, he handled it brilliantly i think that when he flew there and he made he made absolutely sure that she would come back on the royal plane because at first it was just going to be it's like a private undertaking well, operation uh, that's what struck, struck me as interesting reading your book i mean the queen wanted you know she was no longer a member of the royal family the family wanted a family thing but charles did capture the get a no, sense i think of the he mood. was sufficiently and, well you know either personally intuitive or well advised to realize this was going to be an enormously important public moment that there would be a massive outpouring of grief and that he needed, he needed to step very carefully and show absolute respect yeah. to the woman after all who was the, the, the mother of his children and the future king. Yeah, no, no, it is. It is. You, know, you can see why it's become such an important subject, even, th- you know, even 30 years on, 25 years on. Um, I mean, the whole of these two episodes have been about, primarily about Diana and her marriage. Um, I didn't get to talk to this, to talk to Patrick about this, but... His verdict on, on Diana, which um, we recorded uh, for this documentary made, uh, which is, exists in some dark corners of the internet, was that when you looked back on the whole course of her life and her marriage and her divorce, she was more sinned against than sinning, more spinned against than spinning, and more squidged against than squidging. Yes, no, I think that's probably a, a, that's fair, a, pretty, a fair obituary. It's okay. a pretty good up some of how I feel as well. Is this a good time to talk about some of the ideas that we've got for future programs? And, right. and, and perhaps do, you know, people can perhaps put in their own pennies worth about whether they want to hear them or not. Well, I'm looking forward to talking more about your great book on the Cambridge Spies. 
Well, I think it fits into our, 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 our theme of establishment covers up uh, and scandal. There's still, of course, always new information coming out. There's just been a new document release with interviews, for example, with Burgess's boyfriend at the time. And there's still lots of files which are withheld. So, and even a suggestion that they found the sixth, not man, sixth woman. Wow. So uh, I'd be very happy to talk about that. And you're very keen to talk about the sinking of the French fleet. Well, this is, um, most of what we've done so far has been quite contemporary. Um, I'm quite keen to explore scandalous stories and big turning points from the past that were controversial. And um, having written a book on 1940, it's actually my opinion that Churchill's decision to sink the French fleet was almost as important as the Battle of Britain in terms of how Britain survived that year. Um, I look forward to defending that position against all yeah. comers. And that's a sort of story that a lot of people don't know. I mean, you're also keen to talk about Trafalgar and Emma Hamilton, aren't you? Yeah, well, I'd like to know if any of the listeners would care to, for us to go that far back. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge Nelson fan, written about him as well. And his relationship with Emma Hamilton, it was, it was both scandalous and not scandalous. Um, and it's a very 18th century story of kind of that mixture of the squalid and the high-minded uh, and, and the utter hypocrisy as well of the ruling class when it came to matters of sex and relationships. So that'll be a lovely one to do. I mean, there's something that isn't really an establishment cover-up, but I think it's still a continuing mystery, and there's a lot in the news about it at the moment, and that's whether Lord Lucan survived, uh, and indeed may still be alive. There's stories of a man in Australia who fits... Oh, let's the do a Lucan one. I'd so love to do that. Lucan, I think Lucan fits a lot of the, 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 the bits uh, that right. we're interested in. And uh, there's certainly a cover-up, I think, by his friends, well, uh, many um, of whom are still alive. Good to get some of them on if we could. I think our Twitter following has breached 200, which is not bad for an account that's only a week old. Maybe I should do a Twitter poll. Andrew, yes. do you know what a Twitter poll is? Uh, yes, I'm sure I will. <laughs> you don't know, do you? <laughs> I'll do a Twitter poll and people can vote for subjects they'd like to hear us talk yes, about. Yes, that's a good idea. Yes. All right. Well, well I notice that's how Pret decide on whether they're going to have reusable cups and things. Yeah, well, what kind of sandwich you like? What kind of scandal you like? Yeah. Like, Brilliant. <laughs> we'll leave it to the public. Thanks to everybody for listening. Until then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Scandalmongers podcast. This has been a podcast world production. You can get in contact with our show by emailing team at podcastworld.org, placing Scandalmongers in the heading, or via our social media links within the show's bio. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.